Good evening and welcome to Nox Mente. Tonight's guest is Alex Securis. Alex is the author of Why Science is Wrong About Almost Everything and successful entrepreneur turned science podcaster. In 2007, he founded Skeptico, which has become the number one podcast covering the science of human consciousness. Alex has appeared on many syndicated radio talk shows and podcasts, both in the U.S. and the U.K. He is also well-known within the parapsychology and near-death experience research communities. It's a pleasure to have him on our show tonight. Welcome, Alex. Welcome, Alex. Thanks, y'all. Excited to be here. It ought to be fun. This is, um, oh, before we get started, I want to do a little shout out and thank you to Suzanne for filling in for me last last week, last minute. (laughs) Things just got out of hand and I had had stuff going on. So thank you, Suzanne. And um, I'm sorry, Trish, I really wanted to chat with you about lots of stuff. So, you know, I have a hard time going as far back as a lot of people seem to be able to. The first real memory I have is breaking my collarbone when I was about four years old. And uh, I remember my dad tying these little brown leather shoes that I have. And I was such a hurry to run outside. And I ran outside and I, you know, fell down the stairs, broke my collarbone. And uh, it's funny. Those things are so much, you know, that you can't tell whether they're a memory and a dream and all that, which is so cool. And some of the stuff that you do, Um, I guess that's my first memory. Do you, it's, it's interesting because that's a traumatic one in a, you know, you would think, do you actually have a memory of the pain? Or is that long since? No, don't have a memory of the pain. But my childhood was not particularly happy. I had a, a mom who had a substance abuse problem and checked out of the scene pretty early. And there was a lot of kind of turmoil. And I had a lot of nightmares as a kid, you know. Uh, I don't know. And, you know, they were worried about me. and. I, I think I went and saw, a, a, you know, a doctor, a talking doctor before anyone. I, I That was more terrifying than anyone else because no one I knew did that. And we certainly couldn't afford it. I don't know how that happened. They were worried. Well, that I mean, that does show there was like an act of love there. <laughs> Whether yeah. we're concerned about Alex. What, do you, so you mentioned... Um, nightmares and stuff as at an, at an early age. Do you recall any of those images? Yeah, I remember some um, pretty traditional classic, classic kind of stuff of, you know, going to the door and a dark figure being at the door and the feeling of fear and, you know, just that kind of stuff. I mean, did really any of these as a kid. Did any of these like reoc- were these like reoccurring at the time? Um, yeah. So these yeah. were themes. 
Yeah. Wow. But, you know, as an adult and in particular, you know, in doing the show and processing a lot of this stuff, trying to sort through it from a both scientific and experiential level, I think I have a different understanding. At least, you know, my story now is I understand the difference between a dream that probably is entering into that extended consciousness realm in a different way than a nightly kind of encounter. And thinking back, these were kind of the, to me, looking back, they, they seem more like the regular old scary dream of a kid who's scared during the day and can't really mm -hmm. find a way to express it. And mm -hmm. it pops up at night. Yeah, definitely. It's it's definitely, and it is some dark content for a kid. Dark figures and doors, and <laughs> I love this stuff. I had, I can relate. I had kind of a rough upbringing, and I had some dark, dark figures um, that were regular characters for me in dreams. So, what about were you brought up at all with? Um, were you outdoors? Were you in a city? Was there suburbs, religion? Suburbs of Chicago. Oh, Chicago. Yeah, by the train station there. In, uh, Which, yeah. north or south? Or west? West. West. Schaumburg? LaGrange. 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 That's not Western, so far. Western Springs, Downers um, Grove. I'm Lions from... Lions Township High School. Go Lions. <laughs> I'm from Evergreen Park. <laughs> what? I'm from Evergreen Park. Evergreen? Which way was that? O Oak Lawn, Southside. Oh, okay. South Sider. Yeah. But not a Cubs fan. Oh, I did Sox. about a decade Sox, there. Whatever. I'm not a baseball fan. No, I, I wasn't a baseball fan either, but we were uh, kind of driven to the White Sox. My uncle was a big uh, White Sox fan, and he had, you know, my family background, at least on my dad's side, and like I said, my mom was kind of out of the picture for a long time, were these Greek-American people. Mm -hmm. We were brought up in the Greek-American, the Greek Orthodox Church big, big part of the culture, you, you know, and I, I tell my kids now they have no clue. We don't do any of that stuff, but it was so strange. I mean, <laughs> people don't get this. Growing up in Chicago, we were Greek. Mm -hmm. Greek. We were Greek. I mean, you had shit to do I every weekend. You had your weekends planned for uh, like weeks and weeks. What's, yeah. what's that? You had, you had all your shit planned for the whole year. On weekends, like nephews well, and nieces. You, you, you did that, mm -hmm. but I, I, I guess what I'm saying, Jerry, is, you know, it's like uh, I, I'm, I get the, the, the Jewish thing when I talk to Jewish people and they think they're Jewish. You know, they think they're, they're Jewish. It's like you're secular, you know, you kind of get together and do some things and have some meals. There's, there's nothing really religious about it. We were Greek in the way I had never been to Greece. I didn't speak Greek, although when I went to church, everyone did. But that was the identifying, you know, cultural thing. And it's like, it's yes. not until you get much older, you know, as an adult and you go, what the hell were all these people sitting around talking about Greece? We're in America. <laughs> it's not like... We're, you know, in a suburb of Athens here. What is going on? And it's something unique to that time period, something unique to that place. Chicago has a large Greek population. Yes. Hey, it was so it's cool. It's pining, it isn't it? In, you know, pining for home. That? Pining for home. Well, if, I don't know. I think it, it's, it, it also says a lot about our need for community, mm. our need to, it's how we form cults, why cults and religions and all yes. these things, right. you know, there's a lot going on there, but. 
that's the world that that's the world that I was in. But my dad had kind of broken off from that. He was the first person in his family to marry someone Ooh. who wasn't Greek. Ooh. And there, and I told Taboo. you the story. I told you the story. <laughs> so you see how that turns out. <laughs> oh yeah, and I bet the Greek side was like, we knew it. <laughs> I was uh, dipped into the Greek culture quite a bit. My brother married a, a Greek girl who was just like, I mean, she was 30-something, lived at home still. That, yeah. That's how Greek they were. Family. Yeah, I, I'm sure we know some of the same families because it's a pretty tight community. Um, but yeah, I got the whole thing, all of it. Yeah. So my brother actually converted to Greek Orthodox to get married. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. yeah. I worked for a Greek, uh, Greek man in, up in Uptown uh, called TK's. It was a bar. And they they were old school Greeks. Some of them were from Greece. And it was constant. Uzo, Lanishka, Uzo, Uzo. And everything was Greek. Greece created the world. Opa. Greece created everything. And um, I was always thought it was so funny that they had me as a bartender. I've, I've no Greek in me. So, but I did get Would a feel like on the Greek culture. I dated his son for a minute after. I didn't know his son at first. But that was, that's another story. Um, so I, I have a small feel for it. I, I enjoy the, the Athenian uh, Candle Company is where I still order a lot of my candles and hardcore incenses down there in Chicago as well. That's a Greek business. Cool. Yeah. There's Chicago's got, got the Greeks. <laughs> so, so when, in this period when, you're getting the talking therapy. Do you remember what ages you were? No, I was young. I was like eight or something. And um, and during that time, were you? Was it affecting your dream content that you can recall? No, you know, and I only went a couple times. I was totally freaked out at the idea of going and you know sitting down with the doctor. And I do. I. It wasn't wasn't doing me any good. And they were just, you know, credit to my father that he was extremely open minded that, you know, hey, this isn't a stigma. Let's see if this guy can kind of help kind of thing. It's incredibly open minded. But no, it wasn't helping. So I only did it a couple of times. It was just kind of interesting. Yeah, it is. It's. um, It is interesting. I. um, okay, so let's let's move on to what were your ideas of so we we got an idea of your cultural experience in Chicago and kind of a space there and um a little bit of your emotional tone what was your idea about things outside of you so and then this this moves into a little bit of the esoteric ideas so since you didn't really you and you were at church here and there but were you did you believe in ghosts? Did you believe in Santa Claus? Did you have any of those kinds of things floating around? Was there something scary under the bed? No, you know, my upbringing was very, you know, like that, that just like that movie, that guy in Chicago with, who's the guy with that made the movie with uh, the guy, the kids out in the sleigh and the one kid John sticks Hughes. his tongue. What is it? John Hughes. Oh, the Christmas story. Yeah, the Christmas story, which a guy from Chicago and real I mean, man, it was just Ralphie. All the, yeah, Ralphie. Ralphie, yes. <laughs> so it was just 
know, go to school, play football, flood the backyard, play hockey in the winter, you know, follow my big brother around, we're into sports, just regular stuff. And then from there, it was just, you know, be successful, make money, get a good job, go to school. There was nothing. So you were on the wheel, just fully moving forward. Okay, so on that note, what, so let's move into how you experience dreams in, in general. So colors, black and white, audible stuff. Well, not to skip too far ahead in the story, but you know, um, most of my experience with dreams really picked up and started happening as part of the show. You know, Skeptica was this, Skeptica was, the podcast was my attempt to break out of, not break out of, I had, I had done the kind of business thing. I'd gotten where I wanted to go. And I'd always had these burning questions about who am I, why am Mm -hmm. I here kind of thing. And so I was open to exploring everything in all those areas. And dreams was certainly one of them because anyone who goes through life understands that they're so woven into our culture, you know, dream analysis and what does your dream mean? And mm-hmm. scared you or this and that. So I'd only had this surface level kind of understanding, but I knew that there was something to dive more deeply into. And, you know, one of the first people I really talked to on skeptical about that was a guy named who is now I have to put doctor on his name because he just got his PhD from uh, what is school London whatever really really elite school that he dragged him through the through the mill to for five years to get that PhD but uh, Andy Paquette so Andy has had this history this incredible history of twenty years of precognitive dreams. And Andy, like Jerry and I were talking, is kind of a tech guy, more in the the animation and stuff, worked in Hollywood, but a guy who said, hey, I need to create a database with my 5,000 dreams, and I need to code them all these different ways. It's an incredible feat that he did to pull off and the analysis that he's been able to do. But to read his book and to talk to Andy and we've become friends, it opens up a whole other realm that I didn't know anything about. And that led to an investigation of lucid dreaming, which Mm -hmm. I had no idea of. And then lo and behold, I'm sharing this with my son, my oldest son. And he starts telling me, "I, I do that every night. I mean, that's my experience every night, you know? Yes. And at first I was... Yeah, I didn't believe him. I mean, straight up, I just didn't believe him. And the more we talked, the more we explored it. And he he was an incredible and and is less now. So I say was because less so now, but was an incredible lucid dreamer. And through him, I started having lucid dreams and started experiencing myself, which I'm sure you guys exploring the show have found over and over again that, you know, that happens. It kind of gets spread, you know? It's yeah, it's, it is a bit like a virus. I hate to, virus has that kind of negative connotation, but it is, it's a synergenic thing. Wait, how old is your son? Wait, oh, so what years was he really actually 
moving through deep lucidity in his dreams. He's 23, and this was when he was a teenager. This is, that's remarkable. I love it. And, okay, so just to back up a little bit. Um, so you gave us an idea that you were on the wheel that was expected of you to do the general things in life, get these accomplishments done. What actually, so, and you started Skeptical 10 years ago. What, what actually was the catalyst to get you into that state, into I'm going to, I'm looking into this stuff now? Well, you know, as I've always uh, said the story a bunch of times, but it's true. It's like, you know, I, I was in it for the money mm-hmm. and I had a certain goal in terms of I felt, you know, I saw other people were able to make money, particularly in high tech. And I said, you know, I want to do that. I ought to be able to do that. I'd really like to do that. I'd like to have, Jerry, now we're talking about my job out of college was Price Waterhouse, you know, working downtown in St. Louis, wearing a suit and, you know, being a consultant. And I sure as hell knew I didn't want to follow in the footsteps of those people ahead of me, you know. So mm-hmm. I wanted somehow something different, but I wanted a piece of that pie. But at the same time, I was a yogi. I kind of got into yoga and it just really had an impact on me almost from the beginning. And that was an interest of mine that I was able to kind of maintain. But I always had this idea that if I had enough money, you know, not like a wild amount of money, but enough money where I was comfortable, I would pursue, you know, these deeper questions. And I thought that's what everyone would do. <laughs> I thought everyone, yeah, gee, if uh, you know, everyone talked about retiring or having, you know, money or comfort, not having to work. And it's like, yeah, well then, you know, what would you do? Well, then I'd go, you know, I'd figure stuff out. <laughs> you know, I thought, no, you know, no one's interested. <laughs> just like, but I was, so I did it. So I just started calling people up, you know, I said, hey, what's up, dog? <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> Tell me. And, 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 you know, it was a good strategy. Really, it was because when it was just when podcasting was getting started and I was able to call up some pretty incredible people, you know, Rupert Sheldrick and Dean Radin were some of oh, the yeah. first people I had on the show. And you know, I was comfortable enough behind the mic to have a decent conversation. And before you know it, you know, the podcast was off and rolling and and really in those days it was it was really about 10 times bigger than it is now because i didn't know i wasn't doing anything but there wasn't a lot else out there like that talking about that stuff and it drew right it drew right it's funny now that there's so much out there it's hard to find good content so it's the other extreme true true but i no. i like it like this I like yeah. having a lot of stuff out there. I like the Me long too. tail, man. I Me think too. It's... Long tail's best. Chris Anderson. Yeah. Right? So agree. So I just want to, on your son again, did he ever mention what, so he'd been lucid dreaming naturally. Did he ever mention any, anything that maybe how it happened or when it first started happening? Like, did he have any insight for you on that? Oh, yeah, tons. I mean, I, I tell him to this day, and he doesn't want to hear it because he's kind of off doing his thing, but I, I tell him, you know, dude, you're a shaman. I mean, you've got to face that. 
I mean, the purple panther that's sitting up on the rock telling him these secrets in the oh, universe. Wow. Yeah, and he's like coming back to me. Man, I remember asking him, you know, questions about that I was running into in, uh, in Skeptica. I mean, I always remember this one question. I asked, you know, the predetermined question. Yes. Uh, how is it? <laughs> Is it predetermined? You know, it thinks for a minute. It was almost like somebody who knew the answer and was trying to think of a way to put it. He goes, well, it's kind of like a Rubik's cube. You know, you can turn it any way you want, but it's going to come out. You know, it's going to come out. So it doesn't matter the pattern you take. It's going to come out. Whoa. Yeah, he sounds awesome. But it's true, though. I mean, Either way you look at it, it's either either or, and you can't get away from it. So, <laughs> and there's a lot of different paths you can take. You can turn that wheel a lot of different ways, and then you're going to reach some points. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if any of that's true or not. Well, I, do, I find it significant that this is your son, right? That this came from you know whatever the upbringing was. He was able to to be in that space and it, and inhabit these well, other dimensions kids i mean we have four kids you know yeah. so it's like everyone is different and my oldest son you know that was a period i mean he's not really not really into that right now anymore yeah. and like i said i always kind of put the bug in his ear and say you're a shaman don't you <laughs> Yeah, but you need to, he's, yeah, well, I'm sure there's, you know, maybe he needs to meander away and come back. Maybe. So tell us about, Alex, tell us about how you dream though now. So just in, in the general, so just a, let's wide swatch this. Like generally, what do your dreams, what's that landscape look like? Um, Varied, you know, I mean, Again, I've been playing around with it for years because it's become an interest through Skeptico and, and learning, you know, different things and the precognitive dreams. And I kept a dream journal for a while and experimented around with that, experimented around with um, waking myself up at different times and trying to tap into that hypnagogic kind of state mm -hmm. when you're going to sleep and waking up, but just toyed around with it. Never, you know, persisted very far with it. The, the clincher for me, and I feel like this was just an incredibly important insight, personal insight for me, but it's at the skeptical kind of truth evidence level is what lucid dreaming taught me is that all my dreams are lucid. It's my mental state to be aware of the lucidity and the control that I have. Mm -hmm. And so what I found and discovered just through my dreaming and through watching my dreams is moving in and out of that a feeling of control that you have in a lucid dream I felt like I was moving in and out of different and familiar dream states, if that makes any sense. So Completely. as I was losing control, I was going, oh, I know this. This is what it's like when I'm dreaming all the time. And yes. then when I moved into, into a, that space of feeling more in control, I go, oh, this is cool. I'm in control. And then, you know, suddenly 
over a period of a few of those, I woke up and I go, that's, I am, I, I am generating this stuff all the time. I am the creator of this script and, and theater all the time. There's no, that distinction between the lucid dream and a regular dream became much, much fuzzier to me. What about, okay, so on that, which is usually for, this is why our new format is just flowing, but further down in our, in the way we used to ask questions was basically this. So what, so then what is the difference for you between dream state, dream time, and what we consider waking and waking time? Because we, we go through, as you know, we go through these same rhythms in waking life as well where we're more conscious at certain well i always thought i'm sorry go ahead oh i didn't i was waiting on you oh okay i think we we had a little like computer you you cut out a second what what was the question no i it it was uh, i remember the question if you want me i'll just go on it it so i i think that um, are you okay, Jerry? Should I go? Yeah, go, go, go. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. You're good. Um, now I'm having trouble remembering the question. I couldn't remember so, <laughs> you guys, it's hilarious. Falling <laughs> time. Um, okay, so wow. that state between, in, in, we we're just talking about right. lucidity within dreams, right? Got and it. how we're basically always lucid as we are here in waking life. Well, Where is the line between that and this? Right. Um, again, I, I, I don't, that question doesn't draw me in so much as does the, uh, you know, and you guys probably know, well, no, I'm sure you know this, but like one of the tips you'll get when you're learning to lucid dream, or I don't even think that's the correct term, but that's the term people say is learning to lucid dream, rediscovering, you know, because we all do it, I think all the time, but is to, question this state of uh of awareness non-dreaming right like that's one of the things they'll tell you is during the day just kind of get in a relaxed state and say am i dreaming am i awake you know and just be in kind of that hypnagogic state just a little bit just by asking yourself that question and this isn't me this is just one of the things i picked up from one of the guests kind of a classic way yeah it is classic Classic. So I, I found that, you know, directly gets to your question is it, tricking your your mind, your consciousness into playing around with this idea of what is loosening that up rather than tricking is maybe a better term. I, I did find, you know, I thought that was effective at times. Yeah, yeah, I um I agree. And I think it, for me at one time, it was a great tool or when you walk through a door to stop and acknowledge that you're dreaming and the the doorway is a symbol and moving through, but I was looking more for your opinion of this state of consciousness that we're in right now, as it relates to other states of consciousness, such as memory and dream in context to this conversation. We didn't ask him about astral space yet. Well, I know I'm sneaking around. Okay. It gets so, tough. It, it yeah. just gets it, it gets tough. I mean, because again, 
if I'm going to, you know, if I'm going to keep it real. I'm keep it real, Alex. I'm kind of more drawn to the yogic kind of ideas that make more sense to me. And not that they don't have a whole lot to say about dreaming, but it just all seems like, you know, different aspects of this uh, play, you know, like the same with the spirit realms. It's like not too much to get too, you know, understand it, organize it, you know, but I mean, who, I don't, I don't, it doesn't motivate me very much to, to ask those questions other than to look at the science of what people are doing. And that's another way of playing. I mean, science is yes. another way of playing. It's not a reality. I'm not saying like, it, because, you know, and those are some of the more fun discussions I've had, particularly recently on Skeptico is like with Dean Radin again, you know, we just had him back on because he wrote this book on magic, you know, and I love Dean and he's awesome. He is such an important figure in history, in the history of science. And that's one of the questions I had for him, you know, is like, what do you think the legacy of Dean Radin is going to be? Because it's going to be huge because he was right. And he took all the shit that could be laid on somebody and he prevailed and he was right. But having said that, now he's off dabbling in this magic thing and he's doing it in a way that I don't think totally makes sense. I mean, if you're going to go the magic route and same with stretching this dream consciousness thing, thing too far, you mm -hmm. run into the consensus reality thing, which is like, Hey, we're, mm -hmm. we're, it's all <laughs> bullshit, right? I mean, we're creating this consensus reality and we're playing and talking about this stuff and talking about spirits and dreams and all the rest of this stuff. But at some level, we've already called that into question in a way that makes it, difficult to take it too much more seriously than just informed play that maybe motivates us to get up tomorrow and figure something out, you know, that feels yeah. right for the next yeah. time. You get but, what I'm saying, right? Oh, absolutely. But, but I yeah, would it, say part of the limitation is materialist science. They won't consider things, paranormal things as science or try to investigate them. I mean, they can't. I understand why. True. They can't. So they won't. I mean, that's why. Well, and, but hold on, that if they, they, they can't. They can't. So, so that's the dilemma. But they can't on a couple of different levels. You know, they can't in the, the societal, institutional, this is how the game is played. Right. But they also can't in the sense, and, you know, this is what... They can't measure uh, it. What's that? They can't measure anything. Exactly. Right. You know, and that's when I when I, I, I wrote the book a couple of years ago and I always remember it's a great experience. <laughs> great experience writing that book and then going to Rupert. Rupert Sheldrick wrote the forward to it. And Rupert wrote the worst, most non-endorsement endorsement, you know, <laughs> And he said, I can't, I just can't go there. You know, I gotta kind of hold on to, you know, the science thing and kind of this and that. And it's like, I love it. Cause I think I think I was right. I think I was more right than, than I even knew at the time, because the basic premise of that book was exactly that. If you get consciousness wrong, <laughs> you can't get much right. Mm -hmm. So one of it really makes a lot of sense. You know, you want to say, oh, the example I used in the book is, you know, we're going to have a little experiment here. We're going to see 
how what temperature boil the water boils at it's like mm. great well, we'll measure that let's control for all the variables you know let's control for altitude let's control for all these <laughs> well let's control for how the spirit realm feels today and how many <laughs> angels are on the head of that thermometer <laughs> all those things are now on the table and you can't take them off the table so all you can do and you can't control for them so to that point, yeah, you, they can't do it because of the institution, but they can't do it because once you get there, you're like, oh, hell. We can't <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. And then, you know, the table's not even there. Exactly. So, so. And so, we've known that for, we've known that for a hundred years. So right? Do you yes. think that, so, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go, go ahead. I was going to say, do you think that at some point we had a handle on this and it diverged or we lost it or was, you know, is it, is this an anti-Diluvian, anti-Diluvian um, condition? Do you think? Uh, yes and no. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the myth of progress that you're alluding to is definitely a reality. We can see it all over the place. But I, I, think- I meant more like the, the consciousness exploration, that being the science at some point to a, to our civilization, and that's been lost. So let me make sure I, I, I'm, mm. so you're saying, do you, in what time period do you, are you suggesting? Egypt back then. Okay. So um, that, that's a tough one. Mm. T- to me, it seems clear that um, there were a lot of advanced technologies, ways of knowing. I mean, that's almost undeniable. Mm-hmm. I haven't investigated enough to, to really understand how all that plays out. Well, the thing I've focused more on is in the more recent history. I mean, in the last 100 years, 200 years, you know, there have been plenty of people that have popped up and have, if not figured this thing out all the way, have had a pretty good handle on it. And those voices have been asked to kind of step aside. And one of the ways that do that, I always mention is the shut up and calculate thing, you know, which is like, <laughs> look, that may be true, but this is a better way for us to get that next iPhone out. You know, that next right. version of the software is to more or less ignore that and, focus on this. And then when that becomes institutionalized, I mean, then you have, you have what you have. And then you wonder, is someone in control of that? Does that serve someone's interest? I think that's something that's come up more and more in the show that I think is definite reality, which is like, hey, if that was your job mm-hmm. to control the masses, mm-hmm. you wouldn't want them thinking about this stuff. I mean... No, especially, I think, it, I think that pretty much started with the Industrial Revolution and education system and, you know, all that <laughs> back then in the 1700s when that all started up. They wanted perfect factory workers. They didn't want critical thinkers. Yeah. I mean, we could have a whole discussion on that, but I think that gets overblown, you know? I mean... I don't think it happened immediately. It, this was, a, I think it was a long plan. So I don't think it was a plan. I don't think it was a plan in the same, and I think that's a misstep by a lot of conspiracy people. I don't think it was a plan any more than 
like you and I were talking before the show about, you know, Bill Gates and right. uh, Windows 3. It was a kludge, man. And like you said, Jerry, you know, you were, you understood the difference immediately when we were talking about the Arthur Anderson consultant mm-hmm. versus the kid that's got that fire in his yep. eyes and is going to sleep under his desk and crank out that code because it's the most important thing in the world and becomes a multimillionaire. And then five years later, people are going to go, oh, well, he's so connected. You know, he, he was set up, you know, this. <laughs> oh, man, he just, you know, so it is not, I think. So when, when that, you know, it's like the whole robotics and AI thing, I mean, that's, that's real, you know, and, but somebody planned that. I mean, really? Well, don't you think it's more synchronistic? It's we're kind of all working towards something and then creating, you know, like it seems like everyone's furthering tech and then tech furthers itself, the whole Moore's law thing, but on a different level, almost on an esoteric level. I don't think so. I think I think that's in play. I think the esoteric level is in play. I think the spiritual influence is in play. But I think the overriding is just my opinion. We're just shooting crap about stuff. Right, that right. Don't normally get a chance to talk about. But I, I love that guy, and I forget name now. The guy who did, and then he was kind of later outed as maybe kind of mixing the sources a little bit. The guy did a one man show on how. Every, about China and exposing the work in China and the guys who make the iPads and the iPhones and have never seen an iPad. Oh, yeah. And how what was everything... his name? Yeah, and the, the, the great point I liked, he said, you know, well, there's this longing for, for everything, for things that are handmade. He says, well, let me tell you, everything is handmade. <laughs> I went to China and I went in this factory and people are jumping off the building yeah. to get out of it. But when yeah. they're in it and they're forced to work those 20-hour days, you know, to barely get by, they're making all this stuff by hand. And yeah. as soon as they can, they'll get them, they'll get a robot in there to do it. But, you know, to think that eh, it ain't, it ain't planned out. It's just, you know, the next, the next step of somebody trying to make a buck, somebody trying to optimize it, you know, it's the haves and the have nots. It's just, Well, that's, that's what I'm saying is like the synchronistic aspect of it. Like with, with, when conspiracists talk about the they, right. Child and Ford and all these, they were all trying to make their buck. Right. And it seemed to be around that same time that it was good to do business together. And then now all of a sudden you have a cabal, you know, from the outside looking in. And so my question always was, was it's just like kind of riding new waves of, of, of advancement. And you have people that are cresting the waves and because they're the ones doing well in the divide is, is obviously large at times, the haves and the have nots. There's a projection onto these people that are doing well, that they are in control. So that's what I'm saying in a synchronistic way. So it doesn't have to be that Ford and Rothschild and Vanderbilt are in a room smoking cigars saying, ha, 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 now we're going to do this, you know? In fact, they were actually enemies. Right. Well, then there's been contrary stuff about right. that, too, that they didn't all start out that way, at least. Business I, went I have read that Ford did make that statement. He wanted factory workers, not thinkers. And yeah. that's why he had gone to Prussia to, talk, to look at their education system. 
But still, like my point is like the whole synchronistic thing. So this industrial revolution is happening. There's obviously going to be people, you know, on the crest of the wave. And so then the everyone else that's not on that by the laws of whatever we're talking about that, that gave these guys the head, um, it, it, it looks, if you're not the one doing well, if you're the one slaving more in the system, then it's easy to project on a group of people that seem to have it together, whether or not they're even associated. Well, I just think all those things are true and are on the table. And I mean, as, as far as that I've been- table, the, Alex. What's that? <laughs> I said that table, what table, table again? I, <laughs> you know, to, to tie it back to the story, my upbringing is, like I tell my kids, you know, one of the things we did is, as part of our, our family, this Greek family that we had, and Yaya, my grandmother, was an important figure in my life and awesome person. And I lived with her, and she was strict, strictly religious and very uh, conservative in her beliefs. But one of the things we did with Yaya was we'd go and we'd pick weeds on the side of the road, dandelions and all, all these other. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because Greeks, you know, everyone thinks, you know, and all that stuff. I mean, according to my grandma, I mean, just, no one ever ate that stuff in Greece. I mean, that was like once a year when you kill the lamb. Every day you're having greens and, you know, bread, and maybe a little cheese and olives, that's it, you know. But my grandmother, there was nothing that made her happier than going with that shopping bag and, you know, picking weeds. And the fact that she only had to step two steps, you know, and she could reach down and get another weed. And, you know, all of us are looking over our shoulder, hoping our friends don't drive by and see us. We're so embarrassed out there. Oh, but man, I love your yeah, yeah. At one point I talked, you know, I talked to her and she goes, you know, it was after a hard day of weed picking and she had her feet up, you know. She goes, back in Greece, I'd have to walk 10 miles just to get one of those bags. Oh, and I don't wow. think she was an exaggerator. She wasn't exaggerating much. So we do tend to idealize you know, the, the back on the farm before they had to go into the city and work in the factory. I mean, walking 10 miles to collect a few, right. that isn't very good either, you know. Yeah, and that, you know, that plays into all this stuff we talk about too. And, and that's like the the fuzzy nature of memory even and we see it when people die really it's a very present thing because someone could have been a tyrant and then everyone's talking about how wonderful they were and, or in the and uh, so in the mandela effect type of thing it, uh alex what do you think about the mandela effect again i think it's true and i think it's way overblown it's so how of, so do you think it's true well, I, I think at least in some of the examples, we have kind of evidence of people misremembering on a almost, you know, societal, cultural level, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I haven't studied it that much, but I think other ones seem highly, highly suspect in terms of... 99% of them are, but there yeah. are the standouts. I had one myself. Um, I was taught... To to teach, I was taught to spell the word dilemma with an N. D I L E M N A. I went to a Jesuit school. That's what they taught me. You know, <laughs> I went to St. Ignatius in Chicago, by the way. 
So, you know, yeah, see, that's yeah. a good school. And they taught me how to spell dilemma with an N, but now you cannot find that anywhere. Uh huh. And there's a whole community of people. Um, it's dilemma with an N dot info. There's a website. Wow. All these people yeah. who are learned to, uh, taught to spell it that way. Yeah, yeah. I don't misremember it. Right, right. <laughs> so it's just it, interesting, you know? Yeah. And I could blame Google. It could be a Google, Google scrubbing of information because my only source of information, I really, you know, I could go to the library, but that's a hassle. <laughs> <laughs> but right now, your only source is your memory. My memory. Correct. And Google, correct. And others who have the same memory. Yeah. So my thought on, on the Mandela effect is there's no way to prove it's real or fake. You can say, no, these things, you're being an, a dumbass on something so like uh, marketing changes in, in logos and branding. That stuff happens all the time. They change branding. People, I don't remember it that way. Well, it was that way once, and now they rebranded, and they've got new brand everywhere. But then you get the weird ones. So. Right. The anomalies. So there's no way to really prove it's real or fake. Technically. So do you, Alex, do you think on, so it, it kind of in this vein and, and moving a little bit back into dreams, what are your ideas on the bleed through with dreams? So like learning, when you're learning something like a, what people are calling a download in your dreams, where you, you learned something first in your dream or you think you did, um, or, or even, even the more, uh, I guess woo-woo stuff of the precog stuff or the prophetic stuff, the bleed through from there to here with information. Where are you with all that? You know, I was alluding to uh, referencing Andy Paquette, you know, my buddy who wrote the book Dreamer and had cataloged 20 years of these precognitive dreams. Man, I mean, you guys got to check that out if you haven't heard of him. Have him on the show. Unbelievable. We need to get him, Jerry. You got that written down. Yeah, and just email me and I'll, I'll connect you with him because. Okay. Thank you, Alex. Love his approach. I mean, it's a skeptical kind of approach. A guy who's published multiple peer-reviewed papers on his dream database and uh, had a very unique way of kind of uh, challenging the assumption that they truly are precognitive and what this, how you would gather statistics out of this. But I'll just give you one that I remember off the top of my head. So Andy has these precognitive dreams all the time, multiple ones every night. He doesn't even count them unless there's known people, known events extraordinary events. So one that pops to mind is he wakes up one day and he has a memory of having a dream of someone who is an acquaintance, a friend, but not well-known. And this guy is talking to someone else and there's some kind of natural disaster associated with the weather involved. So he calls this guy up the next day and he says, you know, he's does, he does this all the time. I just, Hey, you know, it's Andy. Oh yeah. Oh man. I don't, well, you're going to think this is really crazy, but I had this dream last night, you know, I goes, strangest thing. My neighbor, hurricane 
two trees fell <laughs> on two of his different cars. You know? Okay, thanks. Click. Another one. <laughs> I live for that. How is that? How is that not, you know, statistically significant or whatever? You know, yeah. How is it not predestination? Well, exactly. Mm. So it, it challenges our whole notion of, you know. I, I can, ex I could say that you, I'm going to rephrase it. One could say that there are multiple potential futures and he's remote viewing one of them, which happens to be the one that happened. I mean, you could explain your way out of it, but that just kind of implies there's a potential predestined future. Yeah, I mean, what it really says is we just don't have a clue. Yeah, right. But it's so fascinating, and this is the stuff I really love, is that bleed through. Whether, whether, we're, whether it is, um, as Jerry just said, or I don't even know all the options for how this comes to us. Right. Um, no. Have have you experienced personally though this kind of um information bleed through from dreams to here? No, I haven't, Nish. Have have you ever um have you Me, ever I have yeah, often. That's oh. what I why I started I, I've always been fascinated with dreams because of my early experiences and then just a series throughout my life. But not on the level of your friend where it's several a night. It's usually maybe once a week. And then I experience them strangely enough through deja vu. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. Yes. So that's how I, ex I'm like, Oh yes. Yes. And then because I do keep dream journals loose, very loose. Um, I'm oftentimes able to, to locate when, so some have gone back years, absolutely years and mundane. So most of mine have been mundane. You know, like um, I met somebody at, at, at a place and, it, you know, deja vu, whoa. And then I go back and so I figure out it was a dream. Uh, pretty much now at this point, I don't associate deja vu with anything other than dream recall. Uh, so I, I'm not sure where I stand as far as statistics with that, with other people. As far as what Jerry and I have discovered, it seems to be less common in the people we have um, talked with right now at this point, um, but there've been a handful. What about you? Do you, your experience with deja vu? Again, it doesn't seem like anything. It seems incredibly extraordinary to me personally, but until you hear other accounts, you know, and then you're like, oh, okay, mm -hmm. I better just shut up about my little, uh, you know, experience of, knowing what this character in a movie was going to say, you know, a second before he did, or really what I've experienced is like everyone talks about is you're in a conversation and you know what someone's going to say a second or two before they say it in the way that they're going to say it. That doesn't happen to you all the time. No, no. no. Okay. Does that happen to you all the time? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's crazy. Yeah. Movies, especially movies, TV shows. If I'm watching, I know exactly what they're going to say. Based yeah. on like the way they, it's always before pause. We're gonna say, and then you know, yeah, it's nutty. A lot of mine are situational and not so much um, playing, not so much played out in verbal, in verbiage at all. all like it's spaces. I go into a room, or I, I mean, it, it's literally like I can. I could have painted the imagery of the scene. 
And um, some of the characters, yes, especially significant people that have come into my life all seem to have been there at some point. What do you guys think of this simulation theory? We love to talk about this. (laughs) Jerry, I'll let you take the lead. No, go. What do you think? What do you think? I think that organic matter, as we like to call it, doesn't really exist. Um, if, If we can believe quantum mechanics, they can get down to the zero point quantum field, whatever it is, where matter spontaneously materializes or manifests. So if that's the if that's the case, it probably doesn't really exist. We just it it's more of a it's more of a consciousness projection that we actualize. And and how do you how do you resolve that with the spiritual and what the spiritual traditions have told us about the nature of that hierarchy of consciousness that leads up to some creator God that's uh, putting the show on. What do you think about that? I don't buy it. I think, ah, very good. Yeah. So you, I you think that's you part of the matrix. Extended, you believe in extended consciousness, no doubt. Absolutely. And you would agree with me that the accounts as good as we have them, I mean, if we're going to try and be a little bit scientific, even though we understand its limitations, suggest that there is a hierarchical nature to it. There's a hierarchy to it, right? So when those NDEers come back, they said, yeah, this guy was at this level, but there was a guy at another level and there was a guy at another level beyond that. And then we hear that again and again, you know, not just there in the astral plane, we hear that. So are you on board? Are you on board with the hierarchy of consciousness in the extended realm? Oh, he's thinking. I got him thinking. I don't, I don't know. You get me thinking. I'm just, hey, it's your hey, interview. smiling. <laughs> I, I, I've kind of black boxed a lot of things that I haven't worked on yet. And that's one thing I haven't worked on. I'll put it that way. I haven't thought about it too much. I do think that, that everything is consciousness. Everything. Yeah, yada yada. Yada yada. Right. So I gotta go go skeptical (laughs) on you for a minute. This is what I've been exploring, and it's interesting for me to talk to people who are exploring it as well. So I'm not trying to be too flippant. I think it's really really fun and cool, and I feel like we can talk about it. Absolutely. So the data chain that I see is as I laid it out to you. You know, anyone who's stuck in the materialistic, you're a biological robot and meaningless universe thing. I mean, they're not even at the table that doesn't exist. You right. know? They're just, it's just, it's not even, it's a different kind of conversation, a different kind of toying around the cat playing with the mouse there that we could do, but it's, forget that. Let's move on to the next one. So there is this extended realm of consciousness. Now, if we're going to try and put the alligator clips here and there, to me, the evidence of a hierarchy is just overwhelming. It's just, you can't get around it. And the people who want to get around it, I think sound kind of sketchy. They sound like they're going, falling back in the, you know. The secret society? No, I, I, I think it sounds like, you know, uh, the, the chaos magic folks want to go there somewhat. Mm-hmm. I think the uh, panpsychism people want to go okay. there somewhat. To me, the evidence, oh, the super psi people love to go there. 
uh, the evidence just doesn't conform. And, and I think it, it, it's a, a disservice to try and bend it in that way. I think the uncomfortable conclusion to that is that something like God seems to be in play. Which and one? If we, what's that? Which one? Uh, <laughs> something. See, that's. That's that, was, not, that was a joke. I didn't mean You know, it doesn't matter. What right. matters is to know that to say, to, to think otherwise, you then have to construct the different reality, you know, a different reality. What I like about the simulation, the, the question I love, and I give credit to one of the people in the skeptical forum. That's all I said. Simulation of what? Oh, it, that, it, that, simulation of what? Then you quickly see that when we're talking about a simulation theory, it's we're presupposing and applying on that structure a known structure that we know. You know, it's like, right. oh, it's from the Matrix. It's from this virtual reality game. That is, it's like, no, no. If anything, if there is anything like a simulation in play. Forget about it because it's at a, a level of abstraction of information that is so far beyond what yes. we could ever get to. It's like, uh, you know, Mr. It's like the universe is a computer in and of itself. That's the kind of simulation it is, right? It's like that complex. It's like nothing we would ever think of. It's not a computer box running. Exactly. Yeah. It's like nothing we would ever think of. It's like, um, oh gosh, now the name escapes me. I'm getting old and feeble. The, the, who's the, the, the simulation guy, the simulation guy that everyone talks about, um, my Talbot? big toe guy. Oh, Campbell. Campbell. Thomas Campbell, right? Thomas Campbell? Mm -hmm. uh, Tom Campbell? Yeah, Tom Campbell. Uh, you know, nice guy. Yeah, I interviewed him, but it's like, then he gets down to I've calculated it all out. It's 60 frames a second. Yeah. <laughs> Those guys. I'm like, yeah, yeah. that's really, <laughs> really good to know, man. It's 60 frames. Nothing's about 60 moving. frames. I mean, it could be off a frame or two, but about 60 frames a second. Okay. Nice yeah. how that lines up with the flicker rate on TVs. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think about, um, we've been kind of toying around with this, but how the internet in and of itself is kind of building, building layers of consciousness. I'm not saying it's sentient, but it's becoming more than it, than it was because of all, obviously all the input from everywhere on the, the, I don't even want to say globe. How about this? How about this? The internet uh, over time is st uh, strengthening our neuropathways to make us more telepathic. It's building connections, energetic connections be between people through the, the network, which then in turn might turn into neuropathways. Um, I don't think there's, you know, I don't think there's any question that at some level, the kind of neuroplicity, neuroplasticity model that's in play mm -hmm. it is a reality <clears throat> it, it would would demand that it works that way to a certain extent would demand that it works that way mm -hmm. with this entrainment thing once you get past the fact that yeah they are trying to entrain us no question we've already I mean, uncovered that we are yeah. entrained i mean it's, we, yeah they're not trying exactly. they've done it they, they, they've done it and but but they've probably done it on a much smaller scale than we've kind of inadvertently done it just by, you know, we're all entrained by just I'm scared each of other. terrorists. Yeah. But if you if you think of like um 
just your general consciousness, yours, and aside from your ego, um, where, where you go, where it fractals off. And so we have experiences through dreams and we can experience memory again, and we can ponder into the future and all these fractals of, of your, your own consciousness can, is it possible or is it moving into that, um, possible future where, the internet, and that's what I'm calling it right now, because it, the 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 online experience. I I just want to call it the internet, and not really associate the internet of things, and not associate it with humans at this moment. Is there a point in which it fractalizes on itself the way human consciousness has? Again, uh, I'm I'm kind of fronting because I'm a yogi, you know. <laughs> And I love you fronting, Alex. <laughs> that's that's my skeptical. I'm just a <laughs> but you know, so so the practices that I find meaningful to me on a day-to-day basis that connect me deeper with spirituality are more of the non-dual kind of things. I had a guy on the show, uh, excellent guy named Rich Dr. Richard Miller, psychologist and a yogi. And one of the things... Not Richard Allen Miller, right? Did he, have a, Richard Allen. did he have a hat on? No. Okay. He's an, another Dr. Richard Allen Miller. He's a spiritual tech science guy. This guy's... Who's a uh, genius? This guy's organization is IREST. I-R-E-S-T. And I forget what that stands for. But he's worked a lot with post-traumatic stress disorder patients has worked a lot with the VA and with the different branches of government in bringing uh, his particular kind of yogic meditation as a way of kind of helping these people do it. Well, when you really break it down, what he's doing is very, you know, non-dual. And he's asking these people to ask questions of themselves that allow them to separate that consciousness what we're talking about in terms of consciousness mm-hmm. to that deeper consciousness that we all sense is always there is always observing and playing around with that in a way that, you know, one of the, the, the questions that is the, the culmination, the fifth question is, is there anything special I need to do to be? Mm. And I find that especially as all the other ones are laid out, because the first one starts with, you know, what are the boundaries of my consciousness? How far mm-hmm. does it reach? How far out does it go? How far in does it go? And it creates, it's an interesting uh, process. I actually produced a very sure I took his thing and I put it up on YouTube. I was like, produce, it sounds like this. <laughs> I took his five you questions, put some music there. on it, and slapped it up there. <laughs> I've listened to it hundreds of times. I've listened to it, you know, as a way of kind of getting me into meditation. I find it to be extremely powerful in terms of immediately breaking down some of that stuff that you're just talking about that makes it all look incredibly different. Because if I, if I do just slip into this non-dual approach where I am observing Mm-hmm. this thing that's going on that looks a lot more like the internet and looks a lot more like this busy, endless questions. And if I can get any kind of 
separation on that, to observe that at all, to just sit there and be a little bit quiet on that, it all looks complete. It all looks just not as important. Not that it isn't real, not that, you know, you won't merge with the machine and all that, but that it will always be different than the essential me that's always sat there, always sat there, probably mm-hmm. through many lives, probably through, you know, many has always been there. And just getting into that sense kind of puts things in a completely different perspective. There's nothing unique about that. Uh, spiritual masters from almost every tradition have talked about that almost forever. Yeah, it brings me to mind of, well, what you're saying brings me to mind of the empty circle. And um, when we get above it or beyond, or in it deeper or wherever you find that space. I, I wonder, so you you said something that I, that piqued my interest here. So many lives, when you say that, and, and when you say that, you know, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued by a lot of the things you say because... Um, of your stance and then, and then the waters in which you find yourself swimming, some things are juicy and, and seem contradict. There's a lot of contradictions in some way. So what do you, what are your ideas on other lives as you just mentioned? You know, I have to, what, what pops to mind is uh, I interviewed Brad Warner, who is, well-known in the Zen circle and is a pretty cool guy. And as, as is typical on skeptical, I gave him a really hard time because he's uh, uh, takes this kind of Buddhist kind of not kind of dissing reincarnation thing, you know, which is kind of popular among some neo-Buddhist atheist kind of types. Not that Brad Warner is a, is a, is an atheist like some of those guys are, some of those Buddhists are. I've interviewed some of them on that's an interesting mix how they how you can get to atheism from Buddha is like a, that's a real <laughs> fine trick there <laughs> Brad was a very sharp guy and what Brad really kind of he handed me my head in a way in a way that stuck with it but that I really appreciate when you push people sometimes you get a good answer and this thing was like okay you're calling me out because yeah reincarnation comes with the buddhist traditional teaching i get Mm -hmm. that but also there's been this line of like okay so reincarnation so what all you have is you're here now it wouldn't matter if you have reincarnated or will reincarnate and this is very zen right right absolutely all that matters is right here now. So to the extent that that's a reality, we won't know. To the extent that it will be a reality, we don't know. So to go down that path is a little bit of a, of a misstep. So, Well, is it a misstep or is it just fodder to chew, you know, think, contemplation? You also have the fact that there really, time doesn't exist. It's just a system we've imposed and overlaid over our lives. So. When you talk about a past life, in essence, you're talking about a simultaneous life. So there are no past and future lives. So just by that point alone, it's kind of, but the, the Zen point, the, you know, to center yourself and be still and all that in the now, in this ever present now, 
would totally negate the fact that anything was going on anywhere else. They seem like contradictory things within the same religion. I agree with both of your points, and I think your first point is, you know, profound and easier to forget. It's profound and it's easy to forget. It's like the backdoor materialism. We want to kind of forget that, you know, go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But that time thing, forget that. It's like, no, can't get around that. No. And, and the other point, I mean, I, I think the wonderful thing about the Buddhist tradition, as well as a lot of the Eastern traditions and the Hindu tradition, the yogi traditions, is that they're super comfortable with those contradictions. They're like, oh, yeah. yeah yes. Total, it's a contradiction. Got me there, buddy. You know, so what? You know? They build spiritual character spiritual hairs on yes. your chest right yes yeah. <laughs> i love a contradiction I, I really i find that it's patina in the end yeah but it, it's still so so say in terms of dreaming and 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 fodder again you know i realize we're all just we're all just contemplating right. in the end around this invisible table uh, um through the act of dreaming whatever that is and however it serves you, um, is it possible that some of the content one encounters is, is, is so, not self in the sense, in the union sense, in the contemporary, in the modern union sense of aspects of personality and the deeper you go, the more obscure, the more symbolic they get, but possibly other lives other times alternate use and and to me there's a little thread that can be woven into in theory there so if we're contemplating this um idea of reincarnation without looking at it on a linear line more um the circled right point to point circled zero point um is there anything there for you Alex, in those kinds of contemplations, are you just? Sure. Is it, sure okay. But, but why stop there? <laughs> well, can't take it further because I was walking cautiously. So, so let's let's go to the UFO and the abduction. Uh, yes, excellent. Which we cannot leave out of the equation. Absolutely Let's go not. to the whole entheogen thing, right? And uh, Strassman is out there in New Mexico and gives these people DMT, and mm -hmm. they pop in, and there are the aliens saying, "Hey, glad you're here." We've been waiting <laughs> for you. Right? So yes, we, we have the accounts. So back to your download thing that we kind of brushed over, right? This download thing pops up too, and it seems to be in that space that extended space but different from that space so yeah i totally with you but why stop there there's so much we could throw well on. take a take us take us on a little journey here i would love to hear your ideas on i don't have any ufo encounters do you guys have that the et stuff falls no. for you i saw an orb jerry any ufo Jerry's had his experience. I saw, but I wasn't um, cool or anything. <laughs> like, I mean, I didn't lose any time or get abducted. It wasn't cool that way. I saw an orange orb, like, fly over my neighbor's house and then make a right turn and slowly glide away out of my sight. Well, I'll tell you, just the other day, I've never had an experience, but just the other day, my younger son comes in, and he's a teenager. 
and uh, he throws a drawing on my desk. He goes, I saw that last night. It's a triangle. And he's got written out three paragraphs of oh. it did <laughs> this, it did this. And, wow. Uh, and it appeared, it came out of the water. We live right on the ocean, came out. We live a couple blocks off the ocean, but we look right down on it. And uh, so my older son, a few years before, was out surfing mm. with, it, it, without surfing with some guys who he didn't go out surfing with him. He kind of met him out there, you know, mm -hmm. kind of knew him. So it wasn't like they all saw it come up out of the water, saw it fly around. They just made it for the shore. And then, you know, years later, my younger son sees. That's, in, that's intriguing. Yeah, so. Yes. And I so say so. Any, any UFO encounters for you? But that's not a UFO to me. That, to me, that's Lockheed Martin. Well, per, per, that's a tough one to process, too, because, the, the, I, and I, I shared that with him, too. I said, you know, a lot of people think that the triangles. Yeah. They're, they might be ours, Only but because there's a patent form on the internet. But in the water, <laughs> yes, the TR, whatever they're called, right? TR three B. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, but we've been seeing them for a long time, so I, I don't, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think all that's. But then there's all the theory about how our tech, you know, the the secret level of tech is way far advanced from what the public level no is. No question, no question, and for for our purposes. You you have the uh, the mind aspect of it, you mm -hmm. know. Um, what's going on? What's going on there? Because clearly, from all the all the reports we've had, you know, one of my favorite UFO guests that I've had on is a Canadian researcher named Grant Cameron. Yeah, you, guys, you know him. Mm -hmm. And what I love about Grant is one of the first things that he broke, and he really made. A, a point of investigating it quite thoroughly is um, something that Stanton Friedman, who we all know and been on the show, and I really like Stan Friedman. He's been Thank on the show you. a couple of times and I think he's underappreciated. Sometimes these guys get old and we forget. I'm like, Oh, Stan Friedman. He doesn't know what he's talking. It's like, man, Stan Friedman is forgotten. Literally. <laughs> yeah, forgotten. <I> know. <laughs> but so Stan Friedman Originally filed the FOA, Freedom of Information Act. Mm -hmm. They probably call it something different. Oh, yeah. yeah I don't know what they call it in Canada, but he got the release of the Wilbert Smith memo. And Wilbert Smith was this Canadian guy who basically wound up being this bureaucrat who kind of all the UFO stuff landed on his desk, whether he wanted to or not. And enough of it started landing on his desk that he went to the bosses and said, hey, we got to figure out what's going on. Let me go down and talk to those Americans. So he comes down, he talks to the Americans, and the Americans give him the report that he writes down in a memo, and he gives that memo to his bosses, and that memo is accidentally released in this Freedom of Information swipe that these guys do they're just say anything 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 and they get this thing well the memo is written in the 50s and it says yes the united states government has observed these it is the highest level of importance slash secrecy within the government higher than the hydra uh, the, the hydrogen bomb it says a couple other important things 
But at the end, it says this key phrase, and Grant was really the one, Grant Cameron was the one to pick up on this and really punch it up. And that's that he says, it says, the associated mental phenomenon. So it says that back in the 50s, when they first discovered this, they not only discovered the craft, not only discovered the technology, but they had a sense that there was this stuff going on that they couldn't explain. The telepathic communication, the mind control make you forget. All the stuff that now becomes standard part of the UFO lore, they knew it, wrote it in this memo, and it helps you understand why they pursued MK Ultra. Mm-hmm. After, of course, they wanted to control mechanism, but they also wanted to figure out if this stuff is out there, and now we know how is it done, and all the rest of that stuff. And, and how to shield really, themselves from it, too. What's that? And how to shield themselves from it, too. That was another it, point. Which is always, I mean, if we're going to, you know, crap on the intelligence agencies, we do have to, you know, give them... We do want to be protected, and there is an element of, uh, you know, got to know what the threat is in order to protect one from it. Of course, you don't have to kill a bunch of us to do, do it. Do you know who, <laughs> right. That's what Bill Gates is doing, right? Um, you, do you know who the dark journalist is? That was a joke, by the way. I'm kidding. Do you know who dark journalist is on YouTube? <laughs> yeah, I, I've heard him. I can't remember right off the top of my That's okay. Head. He did a show... Two weeks ago, three weeks ago, on Vannevar, Vannevar Bush. Right. Oh, it was really interesting. Mm-hmm. And it talked all about this stuff and yeah, what was. was really going on, what they were really doing. And it looks, I, I, I totally forget his conclusion now, but it wasn't saucers. It wasn't UFOs. It was, that was the cover. He had, and there's uh, there there's evidence ah. there though. Daniel is not just going off of hearsay. So these, he, the stuff that he was presenting had there's like this. Um, there's some paper trail there. There's information that is leading to this. Just leave that. I forget about that. That's not important. What is important though is Vannevar Bush started a company called something I forget in Maryland or Delaware that has these radar antenna. They're like geodesic globes, just like Epcot Center. That big thing which are also in Pine Gap in Australia. And they're somehow connected that there's some kind of secret technology that's in there. And that's what he was talking about. And it tied to MJ-12 and the, the Wilbert Smith memo because he brought it up. It was just, I thought it was really interesting. I didn't know if you'd seen it. It didn't. I haven't seen it. I, I check it out. You know, I, I love, like we were talking about, you know, there's so many different dimensions to look at this. And ultimately the spiritual dimension is what really drives me but that doesn't stop me from getting super interested (laughs) right well we're the same way yeah i'll listen when when i slice it and dice it i come back and and try and reconstruct it with kind of the occam's razor which i hate because the skeptics co-opted that whole thing but it's a real it's a real thing you know so it's like with the tom DeLong new york times release in december Mm-hmm. which is there you have it right so it's outed that these things this technology is there i don't think the tech it no longer makes sense to 
uh, imagine. And, and not that that was any kind of event. I mean, we knew that all along. Yeah, it just yeah. confirms it. it, it I don't even say it confirms it because we all knew it. I mean, it's a whole different thing. I shouldn't have even gone down that path. But the point is, if the technology exists, then to go back and rewrite that history that Vandiver Bush, it wasn't about the UFOs, it was about this other stuff. It was like, no, it was about the UFOs because we've been seeing the UFOs for as long as we can, we can report them. We've been seeing them from radar and then seeing them on the ground and then the pilots see them and all that. They're there. So, you know, it's like uh, Joseph Farrell, I think is awesome, has a lot of good points, but it's like when he starts spinning that Nazi stuff for, for, uh, uh, Roswell. It's like, what the crap? Why would you have to oh, yeah. go there? What I mean, it's like Nick yeah. Redfern's come up with Japanese handicapped people or something, right? I, I, I mean, it's just to me, it's like, why, why create? It's, it's not simple to say there's you have some other planets, but it just seems to be the best working hypothesis we have. Well, I know for me, what is led in all this is I have a handful of experiences that are unexplainable that, that that affected my life. And so I'm not quick to call them anything. In fact, I don't call them anything. I, I'm just looking for more data. Um, but some of them certainly fit into some of these things we're talking about. And, um, and it, it all just makes me wonder with everyone's ideas. And I'm... And, so I'm kind of, I'm moving this into your ideas now that we've kind of sensed your yogic stance on, on death. What do you think? So when I'm asking about death, what I'm asking is, since that's clearly like a closing or, you know, however you want to look at it, coming out of a chrysalis, a closing of a chapter, the end, um, but it's definitely another state that's not this state, or is it? What is it for you? The idea of death, the process of death, why do we die? I don't know if I've ever really thought too much about that because I spent a lot of time thinking about the evidence surrounding death. Now I've done, I don't know how many shows, 50 shows on the near-death experience and the scientists who are investigating that and the skeptical arguments against it. And I felt a need to just exhaustively look at every, you know. This was one of the reasons why I couldn't wait to talk to you about this, by the way. Well, I I, I think that, that, you know, one of the problems with, it's not a problem. It's just one of the limitations of that research is, but that by definition, it leads you up to that, <laughs> that point, but never really says much beyond that, you know? Right. And, and, and that's one of the problems with the skeptical kind of thing. And it's just the reality of it. You know, they can really get you spinning your wheels where you spend all your time like, no, we proved it. It's not, you know hypoxia it's not this and it's you know the, the blind sea under the den all the rest of you know and like let me prove it this way and there's a conspiracy over here and Evan alexander really did see a rainbow <laughs> every other thing you know you can talk about and then at the end of the day you're like exhausted like okay well what does that mean you know so so what does the questions you're asking what does yeah well, I've, I've always felt that the fact that they've come back means that they don't know because they didn't die Right, they can't oh, tell you that. if yeah, there's life they, after death because they did. They didn't die. Well, they did die. 
they did, but then they, but see, Alex, hold what on, I'm, hold on, hold on. So, okay. so that's an important point, right? So they didn't die. Or the, well, well, their spirit didn't leave their body or something. I don't know. I don't know well, why, but they, you know, they didn't see, complete here, the death the process. Here's the problem with that. Mm-hmm. Like, again, I, I'm a skeptic. Go all skeptical mm-hmm. on you now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> Lay it out, brother. But it, it, to me, it's like the simulation thing is you got to get kind of precise. So like one of the top resuscitation researchers and physicians in the world is a guy named Dr. Samparnia, right? Formerly at Cornell, now at, I think, Stony Brook in New York. Top in his field in resuscitation, not in woo-woo. So, I mean, resuscitation. Given the, he is an expert on what we would call death. When yeah. does death occur? When is clinical death? Mm-hmm. At what rate can we revive people from that state, which we call death? I mean, mm-hmm. this is medically, and this is in the journals. They don't go, oh, we resuscitated him, so he isn't really dead. They go, no, by every measure we have of determining or, or saying whether someone is alive or dead, that person was dead. They were dead for seven minutes. They had no heartbeat. They had no brain activity, and they had no response in their eyeballs, brainstem, the rest of that. We call that dead. They were in that state for seven minutes, and then they were resuscitated. So if we're going to be precise, we got to say, no, that's death as mm-hmm. we understand it. And then we can apply another definition on it at a later time and say, well, your soul death or something like that. But we have no idea what that means. So from the standpoint of clinical death, because that's something that's like I'm saying, you got to nail it down with these skeptics because they'll right. say that all the time. They, they didn't really die. It's like, you don't know what you're talking about. They died. That's they, the, didn't, I, they didn't finish the death process. Well, what's that they, death process? I don't know. That's the thing. Uh, that's, well, then, then we're not saying anything. Okay, so what, all I'm but saying is that I, they did. I don't think that what we consider life after death and existence after death can be proven by a near-death experience. That's that's kind of what I mean. They didn't finish the process to get to that end point to say, oh, yeah, it's awesome here. You got to come. Well, that's just a matter of semantics. I mean, if we're going to play that game and we're going to enter into that discussion, then we have to have certain uh, parameters. And I, I think it, it's it's like the neuroscience model of consciousness that we have is the dominant paradigm, is the dominant model. And when that is completely overturned, mm-hmm. you can't then turn around and say, yeah, well, that's, that's totally not <laughs> valid anymore. But I'll tell you what, you know, there's something else happening there. I don't know what it is, but, you know, it's like, no, you got, just got to say, okay, they're dead and there's life after death because we thought this was, you know, irreversible. We, we don't understand... Right. Think about what think about what's going on here before you dismiss it, you know, too quickly. And that's the whole think about what's going on here. Right. You have no brain activity and yet you have some kind of visual experience. information, visual experience <laughs> that's coming in from a point of reference that is impossible. Mm-hmm. Full stop. That just proves to me that consciousness is not local. Well, and is not time bound and is not. Right. So it's like, OK, yeah, well, so, OK, yeah, that's it. So what is I, that? You know? I'm all in on the life after death. I was just playing devil's advocate. There. Well, so if you have so, as you said, with lucidity earlier on and in context to dreaming, um, 
although this whole thing is a dream in my opinion, but um, if you have lucidity when you're actually not necessarily tethered to your, your experience of your vessel, your body, and then you have, so with you, Alex, there's this yogic slant, where does this lead you intellectually and at a gut level as to what goes on after the process, after the clinical experience of death, when the body is clinically dead, what goes on with you? Again, I haven't really, you know, it's funny. It's, it's really funny. It's a good question because it makes me think and wonder why I haven't kind of contemplated that on that level. Cause I really haven't, I really, I really haven't, you know, the, the, the intellectually um, or at that deeper level, I've kind of gone all the way up to that point of, you know, mm-hmm. what can I do to prepare for that? What should I do to live my life in a way that prepares me for that? But no, no, I don't. I, that's funny. What, what do you think? What do you guys think? I, I love how you're, this is your 10 year pro. <laughs> you're always turning this stuff back on Jerry and I. It's hilarious. I I'm giving you a hand. Um, what I'll do we think about death, about what at the afterlife or oh, is, oh. you know, all that, what we just asked Alex. I think, I think there's a, as you stated, a hierarchy of some sort of progression that uh, happens. But, but I think Nisha's question, as I understood it, is, you know, what do you think about, I mean, how, how all the, even the, the kind of trite, I know, uh, we, we wrote how, the question. How are you going to face, are you going to face death? You know, what is that going to be like? Are you prepared for it? Are you ready for no, what her, comes after? The question is, do you, when you die, are you worm food or do you live on in another form? And follow up to that, are, does it scare you or not? I think that's kind of what she's getting at. No. Yeah. Yes. What do you think? What do you think? I, I, well, it, it. Go on, Jerry. No, I don't want to screw up your question. No, no, no. So, no, I think Alexander got where I was going, and and just and just on that, I, you know, my perspective at this point, and of course, it's always changing. I allow myself that um, be, new data, right? Um, I feel like this is all kind of dream time, and. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, this whole fractal idea, but I don't get caught up in it. I try not to get caught up in it. And I am one of those people that does observe as much as possible the empty circle because I do have a daily meditative practice for years and years. And um, so I think that I feel like there's consciousness in everything and that everything is has a form of consciousness. And so when I say that, I'm talking, in context to what I'm experiencing. So I'm experiencing what the planet and the people and the things on the planet, the rocks, nature. Um, and now we've moved into digital realities, uh, which has, which has changed, I guess, nuanced do, my do ideas. You experience that? Do you experience that feeling of consciousness ever? Do either one of you feel experience that the plants are alive, the, the forest is alive. I do, yes. And that's why I've come to that. And so I'm one of those people that that it, it, there's something about um, 
I need, it could be my astrological chart. I don't know where you stand and all that, but there is a lot for me there. And, um, I'm a Taurus at the sun, but I have a lot, I have a good amount of stuff that makes me ride some of the stability currents. And, um, in that being out in nature, wholeheartedly experience consciousness through this planet. I have at times without being on drugs felt like I, like the planet was breathing, like it was inhaling and exhaling and I was folding into it. This was, a, I mean, just experiences like that. And again, I have a meditative practice and I have, you know, I, 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 I go off kilter if I somehow my daily life gets um, too crowded and, and there's no space for that. So yes, simply yes. Is my question, my answer to that, Alex. Very cool. Jerry, how about you? Are you more dense like me and have to work to get anything? No, I don't. I'm, I think that I, I have strange thoughts out there right now. Um, that, that whatever spirit is comes here to experience life and then you leave. And everything in this container, whatever it is, dies. It's a, it's a container of death. We worship death. We eat death. Everything around us dies. It's the paradigm. But do you, is the planet death to you, Jerry? I get this with the the container. My vessel is is just that. It's a husk. Yeah. But how do you feel about the planet? Like as far as and nature and that is that all? Honestly, personally, I don't know if there is a planet. That's why I love you. I don't know. I'm, <laughs> I'm fifty classic. fifty on space existing. By the way, so, yeah. As it's described to us, I. Personally, I think space is like an expression of consciousness outwardly, and we haven't mastered consciousness enough to travel to these places by going within. So we have to watch, we have to see it that far away. It's it's that distance, you know. It's, but it's an, like a representation. It's a, a desktop for consciousness. Those are all icons out there. You click one and go to it. You know, other planes of existence. I I've said this in our last few shows and I'm, I'm going to reiterate it again here because I just watched the last episode. Um, the second season of Westworld is blowing my mind for these kinds of thoughts. And especially when we're talking organic matter, because that's what they are. They, that's where the uh, tech has taken them. They're organic like us. They're made out of all the same stuff. And their consciousness, which has now been, um, is now sentient, is housed in a sphere right jerry you've seen this it's like a it looks like a little crystal ball in what, a way what, what, it's what, deep, buried deep in there what are we talking about westworld westworld yeah. yeah this last episode really gave that you know it's yeah. a sphere crystalline type sphere buried within organic matter a brain like ours and it's their consciousness and they can move that around they don't have brains that's just a, a wrapper well they're no the new models they're identical to humans and they make that clear in this last episode oh okay i i heard them say that so but i thought that was they more have of bone a, blood yeah okay okay and and they've given us and they've shown it to us to see that there's brain matter and stuff like that but that's beyond the point that's beyond that just makes the point that that gives us that that poses the question Again, where is our consciousness? What is the consciousness? 
And, and aside from our, so obviously when we're going sentient, there's a sense of self, right? But there's so much more also. And what Westworld does is because they're all tied in together, right? Hive mind. And yet there's also the, the egoic state, the I Ness. And so I am finding this fruitful information to meditate on. It, it ties into a lot of the it's synth theory, really. Is it, it for me? This is on our invisible table. This is actually a, a, a real, rea- this is a reality that I am chewing on. It's fodder. Oh, you need to watch the show Humans from uh, England. Have you seen I've, that, I Alex? love it. Mishka and all that. The yeah, sex yeah, worker. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, she's got my name. <laughs> that, you know, if you want to contemplate what is, you know, intelligence and what is artificial intelligence, what is consciousness, what is a person, what is a human, watch that show and it's like, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> Not sure what I'm watching here. Yeah, Westworld is interesting, but I've always taken the stance that they're showing us what we really are. We're the host. Well, and the, and the greater point here is where is consciousness? And so as we're talking about like death. It's the ether. And, and so is it the ether? Is it's the ether? What do you think, now. Alex? Again, I, I'm drawn to philosophically and experientially there being this divide. And I know that in some sense there can't really be this divide, but I can experience the divide of the observer, the yes. one who observes. And what I observe from that position is the West world monkey mind. And, you know, it's, where was I? It's no different than when you go back and and look through history, you know, and you look at the Romans and, you know, they all went to Coliseum and they were constantly needing to be stimulated. And, you know, there's a difference between that and the observer, the quiet one that, you know, you said you could get to in your meditation and then I could Mm -hmm. get once in a great while. But it just all clicks then. It's like the the Richard Miller questions. It's mm. like, it, do I need to do I need to go there at all, or do I need to just observe? And when I observe, everything looks different. It all looks different, and none of that, all the thinking, seems just to say it's less important is like the most huge understatement in the world. It just doesn't even seem to be what it is when I'm 90% of the time when I'm conscious. It's just like, there's nothing, I don't need to think. I just need to be, you know? Right. That's what I experience. Because I don't experience, uh, I'm pretty dense spiritually. I don't have these experiences as much as, you know, like I've said on the show and it, it, drives some people crazy and other people, especially men can really, really relate to it. You know, my wife, you know, she says, Oh, I, I have to feel it, you know, before I can know it. And I'm like, really opposite for me. I have mm-hmm. to know it before I can feel it before I'd even mm-hmm. trust to feel it. I have mm-hmm. to know it. I have to study it, you know? So to me, the intellectual understanding of the observer of the, uh, meditative state of the, um, is there anything I need to do to be 
no, I don't, I don't need to do anything. I don't even need to think I am always there. The knowledge of that then allows me to experience that even just a little bit. In that though, and so I agree. And I think that one of the things that I talk about, I feel like my whole role in life, I came to this feeling like I was an observer. I was always estranged from the race. You know, I was always kind of in the corner watching and love observing. And um, part of all the chatter is getting it into, is pushing it out of the circle and um, observing it in that way like it, this the whole thing Jung was talking about in 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 observa- in observation of the unconscious in his encounter with the unconscious was the projection into the outer world so by doing this and having these kinds of discussions we're we're only talking to ourselves in the end but that idea is big because we're all part of that somehow there's a there's somehow we're all woven into it and even though we can envision that we're projecting all this out that all this is just outer world stuff in the outer world exists you and jerry in my outer world now i've got alex out there you know jerry and people in the chat and all this and and so i'm observing more of what's going on internally. And so the chatter serves a greater purpose, I think, sometimes. It's like building an ant mound. You know, you dig out a little bit of earth and you put it on top, and then eventually you have those great big monuments <laughs> to all your digging. Um, I hear you. Don't I don't know. That's chatter. just me going. I, 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 I yeah. think it's a, it's a big mistake to diss the chatter. It is, you know? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's like I saw this great, uh, or I heard this great bit of advice. I, I always love watching and listening to Rick Archer's show, Buddha in, ba- Buddha in the Gas Pump, Buddha at the Gas Pump. I'll plug his show every time I can because it's this smorgasbord of people who are in this process of awakening and lightning. But, but one of the recent guys I heard on there that I thought was really good is uh, uh, Baba Shiva. I forget his name, but you'll find Baba Shiva on there. Older, you know, pure yogic guy, you know, from India, 40 years and all that. But there's a channel. He's got a channel on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. Well, people around him. I subscribe. I love him. So there's this story niche. See if you remember this, that I thought was really good. He goes, um, this was so practical. This is the part that like connects me because it is practical in the sense that I need that practical experiential stuff before I can kind of jump into the spiritual stuff. Mm-hmm. Some guy like asks a question and goes, hey, I, I can't meditate. Every time I meditate, my stomach just gets in knots, you know, and I'm like, man, I've been there. I know what he's talking about. <laughs> and his answer, I thought, was so beautifully simple, and it was so insightful. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, you're trying too hard. <laughs> he goes, all you're supposed to do is just observe. Mm-hmm. You're just supposed to put your attention right here and just watch. Mm-hmm. And I, that is such a breakthrough to me. It, 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 what, the way I the, the way I've interpreted and have written it down to myself for my daily reminder of meditations is it's the easiest thing in the world, the easiest thing in the world, no matter how much I'm drawn to, you know, going to monkey mind hang or getting it. This mm-hmm. is easier. It's easier than all of it, because all I have to do is just watch. And yeah. in, there's a truth there that is like the, the intellectual truth is. How could it be any other way? 
Yeah, so it's, it's if natural. It, if it wasn't the easiest <laughs> thing in the world, it wouldn't be true. So all the rest of the stuff we create is more, all the Westworld stuff is more complicated than the easiest thing is just to observe. Yes, I, I talk about this a lot because people have all this for lack of a better word, dogma around meditation. Like it's a pro like, you know, you got to sit in this position, you got to do this exactly. breath or that. And it's like, just sit, just be, look out a window, just stop, <laughs> you know, it's contemplate. It's so, um, it's yeah. Alex, it's the naturalist thing. We naturally do it. And we don't allow our, so then what, then what the chatter in the outer world, what are you doing? <laughs> You know, you should be being productive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's that kind of stuff where, you know, the, the world around us has kind of says, well, you can't just sit there and look out the window or you can't just, you know, you have to be doing something. They have to be filling the space with something that we can see, the we's in the world. And, um, and so in a way, it's like, I heard, um, oh my God, this is so funny. I, actually, I'm not going to say it, but it, if like in nature, if you dig a hole, nature covers it, you know, fills it in. So it's, it is so simple. It's so simple. I love hearing your um, the emphasis in your voice because I know you know that. Well, what is yeah, going on here? Yeah, it, it's knowing it and knowing it at, at a different level. So it's like, but it's cool. It's fun. In, in, in my, for me, one of the things I contemplate often, and I have, it was, it's just been a wave in my life. There's just been a lot of um, death brought into my life from an early age. And I came in aware already feeling stuck in flesh. And I've told that story a million times. And um, the issue is still there. You kind emptiness of oh, is okay. oftentimes am I back? Yes. Is, is the, is the contemplation of, of death. And so not of preparing for it and not of the lessons I've learned thus far and all that kind of hubris, but the idea of, of me in it now. So the nowness that where we strip away the ideas of time that are swirling around us constantly. And it, it, I'm, I'm constantly hit by the fact that it, it, it is now, it is always. And one of the things that leads me into talking about dreams and people's experience of dreams is because that's such an easy gateway to get to that conversation. And, um, and in my personal experience with lucidity in dreams, and, uh, I want to, I want to state that I loved your ideas that you brought forward with the in and out of lucidity, um, through dream is those moments when I'm, when I'm like, yes, I'm, a, I'm dream, I'm in a dream. So there's, you know, Nisha's sleeping. However, I don't actually say these things, but I'm just trying to say these out loud. So I sound a little bit coherent, um, is okay. So this is it. This is, this is whatever my state of awareness is at this point. That's not attached to once I move through the, the scare factor, because I did go through a scare factor when I realized I was dreaming and feeling like maybe I had died 
right? That I think a lot of people go through that. Um, or am I dying? There was this ever present taste of, of an eternity, like of a deeper sense of self that was not bound by the narrative that, that my ego is existing in at the time. Do you know what I'm saying? I do intellectually. I, I think, yeah. I, I haven't experienced that, but I, I definitely hear you totally. And I've heard that from other people. And it's kind of like very intriguing. Alex? Yes, did you hear me? No, that was a like one long robot. <laughs> <laughs> it's all you. It's all, all you I saw. Was it on my end? Because I saw yeah. Alex talking and then all of a sudden a smile. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Well, I can try and tackle it again. I think we, may, we need to put more coins in the meter. We're at two hours. Yes, we usually wrap up around here. And so I guess, I guess. Um, I asked for a question. I guess this, did you get any, Jerry? I got one. How do you relate material world to time perception? Well, I think you, you kind of toss that out, you know, I mean, it doesn't really, doesn't really. Uh, he further clarified it. So it seems to me, him, that relation of time is based on exper experiencing matter and the life in it is not time-based. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's hard to, it, it, I don't want to be flippant because it's a extremely, that's it's like, like you, when you brought it up, it's mm -hmm. like, man, you're right, dude. That's like super profound. Now, <laughs> what are we going to do? Cause it, it, it shatters our, you know, we don't want to play that game. Let's ignore it. Shut up and calculate consensus reality. No, I really do see you. We really do have time because otherwise I can't function. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I do think to his other point, the time is relative based on what you're doing. Because, you know, when you're doing something great and fun, time flies. And when you're sitting at a desk at school, it seems like forever. So you, your perception changes based on your state of mind or how much of your left brain is in it, I would say. You know, but, that's definitely true. Yeah. So if you're just having a great time and you're not thinking or worrying, then time is of no matter. Literally and figuratively. <laughs> <laughs> was your question? I don't, have, I don't think anyone asked it. Oh, there's one more. Uh, what do you think about the role of genetic memory in or around consciousness? That's a good question. That is a good question. And I think in particular, you know, if you ever have to battle the skeptics or if you have a, a grumpy old uncle that you have to sit with at the Thanksgiving table, a little story about epigenetics, it goes a long way in terms of <laughs> yes. how does that little sixth generation chicken that's separated at birth still respond to that weird smell that was. Uh, you know, introduced to his mother long ago. And if no one knows that story, go in and research it. But it's so funny also just, you know, we jump past in this whole conversation, the materialist thing. But every once in a while, you just got to shake yourself and say, 
wait a minute, this is still the idiotic dominant paradigm that the whole term epigenetics, it's like epa what? <laughs> I mean, how is this? We it's, it's 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 not above. I mean, it, it calls into question whether what we even think of as genetics has anything to do with anything. I mean, it's morphic fields of Rupert Sheldrick. You know, it's epimorphic mm-hmm. fields. Maybe mm-hmm. it's also like you know one of my favorite things lately is the whole neuroplasticity discovery. Mm-hmm. We didn't discover neuroplasticity. <laughs> anyone right. Columbus discovered. <laughs> You know, the continent over here, it was here. It was here for a long time. He just sailed over and bumped into it. Neuroplasticity is the way that these jelly thing inside your skull works. We didn't discover that. Uh, okay, we have another question from Seven Raven. That other question was from, from Affluent for you. Thank you, Tom. His name is Tom. And Seven Ravenwolf wants to know if you have any thoughts on the false white light story. If you're familiar What's, with those. What is that? No, tell me. Um, I don't know who started it or who. I don't know where the story originated, but there is a conspiracy story that the white light that people see when they die is actually the archontic tractor beam. That pulls your soul back into the reincarnation cycle. Yeah, I, I have heard. Mm. I have heard. That. Okay. Uh, interesting, and I would relate it back to the, what what I was throwing out there as the kind of Occam's razor thing. You know, mm-hmm. Occam's razor to me and UFOs is that they're flying saucers from other planets. I don't know if they are or not, but. You know, it's a way out there explanation, but it sure as hell sounds better than anything else I've heard. The Occam's razor on death, what after death, near death experience, what that tells us is you die and you go to heaven. I don't know what that means. I don't know what heaven means. I don't know what God means. I don't know any of that stuff. But that's the Occam's razor. If you go look like Dr. Jeff Long, who is a radiation oncologist in Louisiana, who started seeing people die and and got interested in the stories that came back when they didn't die, you know, and started collecting all these and organizing them in a systematic scientific way. And you start looking at that data set. It's overwhelming. I mean, yeah, people die and they go to heaven. Most of them see God. Some of them see some terrifying things. Yeah, but that's a small percentage. And, you know, we don't know what that is, but we know that this is the experience that most people see. So, the you know, being sucked into the, uh, maybe, but Occam's razor would suggest otherwise. What do you think? And to that point you made about some people seeing hell versus heaven, what do you think about the idea that they somehow know they're not going to die, but they get a taste of what they're expecting because of some kind of reflection? You know, like they were bad in their life and they expect to go to hell for it, so that's what manifests for them when they die. Sure. You know what I always, what I also think, and mm-hmm. I've never really kind of shared this too much because it's, it's out there. I don't have any way of back. We won't tell. Up. We won't tell. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, 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 it's in your guy's domain because oh, cool. it's the dream thing. What the lucid dream thing has taught me is mm-hmm. the, the, the mechanics of this way that I create these stories, you mm-hmm. know, because I, I've been caught in that state of not only 
being in the lucidity, like I told you, but then slipping into the non-lucidity mm-hmm. and saying that, oh my God, I'm just creating this whole thing mm-hmm. right in the process. So then that definitely, Jerry, opens up the door to, oh yeah, I could create any sure. any kind of reality there. And, and that would be a perfect reality to create, you know? Well, as, you could imagine if there are infinite realities, infinite parallel dimensions, whatever you want to call it, and you're your consciousness can only focus on one of them at a time. Put it that yeah. way. So mm-hmm. yours is here. It's locked here for some reason. Imagine if you could unlock it and move before you die to another one. It's your life. You're allowed to be in it. Maybe those other um, realities are part of your dream, your other dreams, what you dream about. You know? No. But thank you. Um, I think one more question, and then we'll call it quits yeah i know what nootropics are do you have any thoughts on nootropics i don't uh, refresh my memory sorry smart drugs um oh yeah yeah makes your dendrites Um, brushier i think it's a really i think it's a good question you know a, a, a related thing is i used to kind of uh, really put down the AI thing, you know, back when I was in school, I went back to, I was actually went back to the university of Arizona as a graduate assistant to get a PhD in artificial intelligence. Oh, wow. Cause I didn't <laughs> want to work. I was, like, <laughs> I was like, this sucks. I want to go be a college professor. So I did that for a couple of years and I said, this sucks. I want to <laughs> go do something. <laughs> but so, but I was right in the middle of that AI stuff at least a little bit, you know, so I've always been kind of like AI, you know, I think, but I've changed my opinion and what changed it for me is I kind of like to play chess. You know, I just play it on the computer and stuff like that. And it's inter- interesting to me. And have you seen this thing where uh, Google? Google Go or the, no. Go, the GoBot? Well, Google came up with a chess program mm-hmm. So this, we're going to date ourselves here, Jerry, but you know, big blue blue Watson, right. Was the chess champion Mm -hmm. and they beat Kasparov, I think, or whatever. Yeah. And was, they made a great documentary on it and how they did it. And they just threw processing power at it and just figured out every combination. Mm -hmm. So then IBM has been the chess, the smartest, the best chess player in the world has been a computer for a while now, you know, all that stuff. So it's like Google comes along. And they developed this program that learns chess and they put it against the big blue IBM and it beats it. it. Yeah. In, in something, I'm going to get it wrong. It's like four hours, four hours, or maybe it was 40 hours, whichever one it was, but it learned it. It played millions of games and it beat it. And it's like the amount. So that sounds like a geeky story, you know, but the amount of time and effort that went into that and that it could learn and get out. Whoa. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I think that to me, the way that relates to the psychotropic kind of thing four is hours. four yeah. hours. Four hours. It's amazing. Nice. <laughs> so psychotropic, uh, you know, yeah, it's, you know, stoking up that other computer, adding a little memory, you know, it's like the extended, I mean, that's coming too, right? The wearable, you know, you're going to have, have implanted who wouldn't well, that's the thing. Gonna... we don't need implants we could probably transfer stuff through frequency they just have to give us a tech that the army has you know? and 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 we're gonna line up for it you know and and not all of us will but some of us will and that's just 
the reality of it and you don't even have to, you know. So after well, they we already the church... do though, with yeah, like say LASIK surgery, people right. do it. I, I, uh, I, wouldn't I you? I had it. So yeah, I mean all these things that that oh, we so, think are scary, you know, but the I good know. side of all this is the enhancements of our life. Our definition you know? of body modification is going to yeah. expand as our awareness expands. Yes. Put it that way. And and the way it will be introduced is not as diabolical and as conspiratorial as people think. It's no. like the Italian guy who's doing the head transplant, supposedly this oh, year. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is another one. It falls in this general category of, you know, I just shut up about that stuff because I don't, I mean, I shut up and I go, please tell me because all bets are off now. You're going to prove it one way or another. You know, there's not going to be a lot of. A lot of bets one way or no questions one way or another. Yeah. But, you know, when people wonder about the ethics of that, it's mm-hmm. a good reminder of, you know, you're going to have guys like, oh, they should never do that. And this, you know, this, this. And then they're going to wheel out that guy, the quadriplegic, who's been right. in your condition for years and says, please, I'll do anything. Yeah. Have. And you go, oh, my God, because we all put ourselves in that situation. And we go, if I was there. I'd want that ability to make that choice i wouldn't want to to have somebody from the you know phony church tell me oh no son (laughs) that's what god wants for you i'd be like well maybe maybe god wants this other thing for me too just let's see you know yeah i'm all for i'm all for this great side of science no matter I just wanted to talk about the AI again because Google's had a couple of AI things that are, were interesting. That was one. The AlphaGo was another where it beat like the best Go masters right. I could find. And, but in a way that the other player didn't understand what the computer was doing. Right. That was really interesting. Right. The second one was a Google Translate bot AI. They took it offline because it had developed its own its language, own language. Yes. its own common denominator <laughs> language for everything to be translated. Right, right. But they didn't take it offline. I'm sorry. Facebook took theirs off, which also yeah. created a special uh, a language yeah. to discuss things within itself with. Yeah, yeah. We can do this a lot better. You and me. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's right. And, and I just, one of my pet projects is finding parallels between echoes of what's happening in reality in media in the last couple of years, you know, Mm -hmm. people would call that predictive programming. I think it's more of a, an echo of what's to come, you know, but anyway, that's my theory. The point being, um, there's in almost every show where people get implants or, um, in humans, it it happened in humans. I don't remember. There wasn't, I've seen so many shows lately with Android people, but when humans get enhanced with tech, they develop their own language. It's like in every single one of these shows. And it's really interesting to see that in there. And then yeah, to have the, these AIs doing it, like, oh, it's creepy. Anyway, I could go on and on about AI. I know. This but we could go on and on. I think the big takeaway, though, is that people need to realize that AI is not necessarily consciousness. And they need to be kept separate because they're separate things. Sentience it, is the thing. I want to say sentient. I don't. Th- I think you can be sentient and artificial, but I don't know. I really don't know. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is a whole different discussion. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I think it is, and it isn't, and I think that it's. We just, man, I'm just much more. 
um, open to, you know, like I said, I used to be much more on the other side of taking a hard line that, you know, no, it's not. And, you know, could some things, but you know, I don't know. I don't know when that head transplant happens, man. We're all going to be. Is it still Bob or is it a new guy, right? Great. All right. Well, that's the show for tonight. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. I don't know who's next week. I'm sorry. <laughs> so um, Alex's links and all that. Alex's links are all in, in the description uh, for the video. And please check out and subscribe to his podcast because it's excellent. And we thank you, Alex. Do you have anything else to push or plug? or? No, new, guys. It's been things? an awesome conversation. I yeah. appreciate this, it. Yeah, yeah thank this you has so been much. wonderful. Well worth the wait. Well worth the wait. Let's stay in touch. Definitely, definitely. So you hang out while I hang up on these people. All right. Thank you, everyone. Take care and have a great night. Thank you. Everyone in the chat I missed, of course. Nice stream.